Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of the New Book Network. My name is Roy Barzas. I'm a host of the NBN channel. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Galit Atlas on her edited work, When Minds Meet, the work of Lewis Aaron, published by Rutledge in 2021. Dr. Aaron, I mean, Dr. Atlas is on the faculty of the NYU postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. She's also the author of The Enigma of Desire, Sex, Longing, and Belonging in Psychoanalysis, and Dramatic Dialogues, which she co-authored with Lewis Aaron in 2017. She's a faculty member of the four-year adult and national training program at the National Institute for the Psychotherapies. She serves on the editorial board of Psychoanalytic Perspectives and is an analyst and clinical supervisor in private practice in New York City. But it is particularly relevant for you as listeners to know that she was Lou's life partner, and together it is she and Lou, prior to his untimely death, that curated the papers that appear in this book. And I personally feel very honored to be interviewing Galit, um, as Lou was very instrumental in my own work in the text Core Competencies, where I wrote in my acknowledgement to him that Lou Aaron, without whose vision and advocacy, this text would not have come to be. He is a man of extraordinary vision and contribution, and I'm humbled that my idea caught his eye and that he saw the value in my efforts for this, for my book. And the thing about Lou is that I knew that I was just one of many that he had advocated for to have our work published and, and, and seen. And so I'm very deeply grateful to him. And when I, he was here in Seattle and I interviewed or introduced him uh, for our weekend seminar with him, I do remember saying, <clears throat> some of you may or may not know uh, I've, or have read um, uh, something of Lou, but I can assure you, if you've read anything in psychoanalysis, you have read Lou Aaron because he is prolific and he's either, if he hasn't written it, he's been quoted. And so it is with such a, um, a privilege that I get to interview Galit, who is so uh, deeply connected to Lou. And I was telling her before the interview that when he was here in Seattle, their relationship was in its early stages and his deep love for Galit was obvious and his excitement about um, her as his partner, as well as her as a analyst and a theorist and a thinker. Um, so I'm just going to say a bit more and then we'll just dive into the interview. But this book is a marvelous collection of Lou's work, which is representative of the breadth of his mind. In this work, Lou not only offers the reader rich contributions of his theories and his practices, but he is so thorough 
in grounding his ideas in the historical corpus of psychoanalysis that the reader is schooled not only in Lou's commitment to a two-person relational psychoanalytic idea, but to primary theorists and practices in psychoanalysis from Freud to present day. Also, in my personal experience, as well as in Lou's writing, the beauty of his writing and its polemics is that Lou is not defensive. When reading Lou, I always feel like an invitation to join him in playing with an idea, to let it grow, to co-create, to participate, to wonder. And in reading this text, I again felt the invitation to think and to, and to, to create and to imagine. Lou appears to find pleasure in difference, even as he holds to his own hermeneutics. He does this in theory as well as in practice. And Galit, you mentioned in the foreword something very similar to this, where you, uh, that Lou believed theory doesn't exist in a vacuum, but, but must, must be understood within a historical, political, and sociological context. But in a paragraph later that really uh, caught my eye, you mentioned also that his theories and practice came from the personal. And you cite in particular his interaction with Harold Searles. And I'm wondering if you can tell our listeners a bit more about this. So first of all, thank you so much for inviting me. This is a, to, And this is a very special project for me, as you can imagine, filled with um, love and um, with grief. And it's a project that Lou and I started together before he died. And we were thinking about it. And in the last month of his uh, life, I basically told him that I am going to do this uh, for him and um, publish this his work uh, and a book with his articles. The thing is that Lou had more than 112 papers that he published. So you can imagine that to choose 12 chapters it was very challenging. And I do have to say that Lou and I chose the 12 chapters together, except I made a very, very light changes to the outline. Uh, the main thing that I have done, except for uh, editing these papers, is um, keeping Lou's original idea of how this book should be. So originally, what he wanted is for me to edit this book, even when he was alive, with his articles. And he wanted to write an introduction to each chapter. So kind of, um, you know, um, many years later, right, go over each each article and say, okay, what do I think about it now? And have a little bit, give the readers, not just the articles, but a little bit more for each article. And so he wanted me and he asked me to edit it for him while he would do that. And he started with writing the introduction to the chapter on dreams, which is, let me look, I think it's uh, it's the first chapter in this book, all right? And, but he didn't finish writing this introduction even. And I decided to, um, uh, by the way, that paper on dreams, the chapter on dreams, the first chapter is, is he's, uh, the, a paper he presented for the first time in 1987 after he graduated from postdoc. But since he never completed that, I decided to to publish it the way it is so you could see that it's it's i did not finish it for him i just left it as is and i when i started editing this book right after his death 
I decided to publish uh, not only this incomplete uh, introduction, but also a new introduction to each of the chapters. So what you get in this book is, is lose 12 articles and a short introduction. I invited a number of colleagues who worked closely with him to write introduction to the rest of the chapters. So um, going back to your question, I mean, anyone who knew Lou knew that Lou was interested in integrating theory with social context, with the theorist's personal history. And he, every time before he did anything, and, you know, he dived very deeply into every person, every theory he ever taught. And he read anything he could find about not only about anything that was written about the theory, but also about the actual uh, person that he was um, teaching. And he wanted to know about their life, and he wanted to know about their relationships, and about their childhood, and about the social context of their writing, and about anything. And I remember him, you know, anyone who who knew Lou and in our family, you know, his kids and, and my kids, we always laughed that Lou opened his book and he reads all the time with a, with a yellow marker and he marks the book. I don't know if you've ever uh, seen that. I have many, many of his books with his yellow markers in them, highlights, and, uh, and really studying. I've never seen somebody who studies the way he did, which really, of course, inspired me and taught me a lot about hard work and about what's, you know, how it looks. Uh, so going back to your question about Harold Searles, I think it was in 2012 when he started teaching Harold Searles. It was before Searles died and he car- carefully studied his biography and read every chapter, of course, that he had written and watched some videos that he have um, of, of Searles um, working with patients that he could find. And not so long before uh, Searles died, Lou contacted him, and and he, Searles sent him, emailed him some unpublished videos, um, and papers that Lou then was very proud to have because nobody had those, and used in his teaching. And when teaching Searles, and in the chapter that, of course, Lou and I wrote in our co-authored book, Dramatic Dialogue, we have a whole chapter on on, on uh, Searles. And there, Lou does this thing, brilliant things that he does, and he discusses Searles' uh, history and how that history made him who he was. I'll give you like a very brief like, um, example. Like he was talking about Harold Searles, um, the child who was, uh, his parents had a, a clothing store and he was their model and how he was a performer from a young age. And later on in life, he performed therapy on the stage. And by the way, before, you know, one, one other thing that I don't think I wrote it in the book, in the introduction, I left it out, but he, all, I think I left it out, that he also uh, met with uh, Harold Searle's daughter, who is a famous actor. Her husband is an actor, and I think her children are actors. And so you see there was some uh, intergenerational acting. Uh, and he met with her after uh, Cyril's death, and she lives in uh, England. And I think that was a very, that was some of what was so special about Lou, right? He took everything into, right, and made it very personal.
and invested a lot in everything he'd done. Well, and I think what um, what is the beauty of that, and even as you talk about it, is sometimes how we ignore the um, the impact of our own personal life, our traditions, our ethnicities, and how really all all of our personal life influences our theories and our practices. And which, of course, moves away from uh, sort of one-person psychologies into two-person, where the self of the therapist is so essential within the room. And, and Lou saw theory through the context of the writer, through the theorist. And yeah, you know, you mentioned dramatic dialogues. And in that introduction, you also, well, if you could just say a bit about dramatic dialogues that you and Lou wrote together, where you began to rethink, um, how did you even say it, that therapy is a dramatic dialogue as opposed to, uh, and that self as a story. Um, and it, as, um, and, it, and so yeah, just say a little bit more about what the two of you worked with on sort of helping us rethink the therapeutic uh, relationship and dramatic dialogue. So dramatic dialogue, dialogue was a, a book that we caught authored, I think we published it in 2017, if I'm not wrong, right? And we worked on it. I do have to say, combining the the personal and the um, professional, is that we worked on it um, when Lou, we started it before Lou went into his big surgery, um, and he had a, a very major surgery that we didn't know how he's going to survive, if he's going to survive. And so I think that there there is a sense in the book, and if you read it that way, this book was was written in the shadow of his illness uh, when he was actually very sick. After it was published, he was in remission for a few years. Uh, but when we wrote it, right, and there's a lot about death and about suffering and co-suffering, but basically the idea of traumatic dialogue um was uh, thinking about the analytic stage, right? And the way uh, analysts and patients live and, and relive things together and how the analyst comes, uh, the, the analyst life, you know, it's about, a lot of it's about enactment and about, we talk uh, about uh, generative enactment, which is a, um, a term that we um, developed in that book. And we talk about the perspective function, which is, thinking about how we work with the notion of the future. And so if you think about it, even again, thinking about the personal life, there was a lot about the future, about death, about suffering, about, but, but it is a, a, a book about therapeutic action and ther- what we call therapeutic traction and about how we think about contemporary clinical practice, especially around enactment and generative enactment. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to say that that was uh, that was a real uh, this idea of the perspective function and generative enactment. That was such a a wonderful um, awakening for me when I read that, because we in we speak so much in psychoanalysis of what was and what's relived, not what's what's trying to be tried out before one can live it, if you will. And I'd never. And, you know, I'm hoping it gains more traction because I think these enactments that have that we have are not only of the past, but practice for when they when a patient leaves therapy, say, 
uh, and trying to have a different version of themselves. It's, yeah. Yeah, thank you. I, I Listen, I, I feel like the dramatic dialogue was a book that was accepted in in, in a very extraordinary way by, by people. And I still get a lot of, uh, you know, emails about study groups who study that because it's, in some ways it's a very basic book, you know. It's not... It's it's a short book. It's a book with a lot of clinical material. It's a book with a lot of uh, therapeutic tales, uh, the way we call it, and and it's very accessible. It's not a book with a lot of uh, you know dense theory. Uh, there, it's it's you know Lou, and I think the combination of both of us. Lou is a very clear teacher. Everything and and it's very very evident in dramatic dialogue that his teaching is very clear. Uh, I brought a lot of my focus on, you know, on, on, on clinical, writing clinical material. And so there are a lot of stories that we formed and a lot of uh, very clear, I think, um, theory. Yeah. No, it's, it's a um, wonderful contribution. So as we're talking about the personal, um, what about Lou's personal life that you know uh, that shaped some of his thinking and um, some of the things that we talked a little bit about was even in the last 10 years of his life, and especially after the death of his mother, he returned to reading Freud and Judaism. And um, so, so much of his life, just like we were talking about Harold Searles a few moments ago and all of us, how our personal life comes in and makes up theory. How tell us about Lou and how how his personal life was formative in his theoretical and practices? So you know, one of the things that I've done uh, when I was thinking about how to write the introduction to this book, because as as you can imagine, there are so many ways to write introductions, and and my goal was to write something that will give something to people, you know, not just grieve his death or or talk about how much I loved him or how much everybody appreciated him. But actually what I decided to do is to to try and and use the spirit of his, of his teaching to do exactly what you're asking me and now to do some to make to give to give people some understanding of who Lou was and how his personal life affected his own uh, theory, which is exactly what he used to do for, for other people and when he taught. And uh, I have many, many examples, but um, about uh, for each chapter actually, and the and the, um, and the outline of the book about what is related to where. But I'll I'll give you a few examples. Uh, I think one of the most meaningful things about Lou's uh, history in childhood that he was very open about was that he was an only child. And uh, he he's one of those people, you know, that never felt bad about being an only child. <laughs> it was something we always talked about because he always said, like, when I was young, I was so happy. I never wanted to have siblings. I always thought, like, no. I want to be an only child. So it's, and it's so special and never felt the loss of not having siblings. And I think he was very open about how uh, that is related to his theory on mutuality and how uh, mutuality is not a very, 
uh, it doesn't come to him so easily because he never appears, right? And so he grew up and he used to say, you know, it's much, much easier for me to be a son or to be a father or to be a mentor and a teacher than to be a peer. And to be, I think part of our relationship was really, but that's why we, we processed that because we were uh, peers, although Lou was uh, almost 20 years older than me and uh, much more advanced in the field when I uh, started. Uh, but as time passed, uh, we became more and more um, equal partners. And, and I think that was part of our, our dialogue about how, what is easier for him and what is harder and how he, and how he used to say that people write about the things that they are um, struggling with. Uh, he always, he even used to say that people choose, choose to, um, to practice um, schools, uh, psychoanalytics, to join psychoanalytic schools that are difficult for him. He said, like, if you, if you have a hard time with aggression, you might become a self-psychologist or, or a Kleinian, which is the other, uh, right, the other. And so that is one example of things that Lou used uh, to talk about. And I'm thinking about if, uh, you, if you mentioned the um, Judaism and Freud, and, and I'm thinking about that too, you know, which there was some similar a similar dynamic with classical psychoanalysis and with Judaism, but that is related to, again to the ways Lou thought about authority figures. Um, so uh, another uh, another thing that I don't know if people know about Lou, and again he was very open about uh, that and talked about it in, in interviews as well about his personal life is that he was, um, he was as, as an only child, he was very attached to his mother. He even called his parents in their first names, you know. Uh, he didn't call them mom and dad. He called them Git and Ruby. And throughout his life, Lou struggled to separate and differentiate from his mother. She was probably the most important, influential person in his life. And I believe that he reenacted that dynamic with the historical figures that he taught, which means, and tell me if that if that makes sense to you, you know, knowing him also and knowing his style, that he that what he have done is that when he taught somebody, he immersed himself in in their life. He also identified with them, uh, immersed himself in them, but then always rebelled rebelled against and differentiated himself from them. And this cycle was played out over and over again, identifying with his ancestors or with the theorists he taught, followed by a wish to differentiate and break apart from them, and then reuniting with them. So we can easily recognize that cycle in his um, internal relationship with Freud's legacy, for example, which he Anyone who knew him, I mean, Lou was a Freudian. He he admired Freud. He mastered Freud's theory, and he had a lot of reading groups on Freud. But then he rebelled against Freud and came back to him again and again. And you can see throughout his his career how he started as a Freudian and then rebelled against it. And and it's not you know it's an interesting thing that that. Um, Lou always uh, used to say that the relational theory 
is both a revolution and an evolution. Yeah. 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 You know, um, another place that for me is as sort of a religious person, I was really struck with his return to his Jewish religion. And I'm a, a students in my class. They say, if Roy asks you a question and you don't know the answer, just say boober and you'll get an A. And, <laughs> and I see it. So I, I see that. And so in um, and maybe it's one of my uh, polls to, to Lou even. But um, what I was wondering about as, and part of telling story, too, is um, about this return to his Judaism, I'm sure is very complex, but he had to go away, as you just said, and then come back. And what occurred to me when I was reading um, that Lou became convinced that the place of change within psychoanalysis was less about intellectual insight, uh, insight and more about what you guys even talk about in dramatic dialogues, the experience of a, of a relationship in which there's a genuine responsiveness between two separate people as they interact upon the other. And here it seems to me that his it, this idea that you talk about about uh, immersed, identified, rebelled, and then differentiated is that he comes back to his religion because his psychoanalytic theory grew to where this idea of, of uh, mutuality and in the sense that he discovered what Buber did and that it's in genuine meeting, we get a glimpse of the eternal thou. We get a, a, a glimpse of God in our most intimate encounters. So that's what I was playing with that idea and just want to... I love that idea. I love it because that, that idea is really the idea about intimacy, right? And the way mm -hmm. he thinks about relationship, right? Yeah. 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 And Buber, you know, again, too, it, uh, his whole idea of meeting and mismeeting is very similar to what you just uh, said about Lou, mm -hmm. which is an immersion, a break, and a return. Yeah. Um, that's so interesting. And, you know, that's psychoanalysis if we yeah. really think about it, isn't it? Yeah, that's really interesting. And you know what, that is a, the, the moment, and as in many moments in my life, and uh, is that I wish Lou was here to, um, to talk to you about it, because I have no doubt that he would have a lot to say about it. And that's a sad moment of thinking like, yeah, I'm sure that that's true for him. And he, he would uh, have a whole dialogue uh, in, uh, which is interesting because the, the dialogue, it would be an in, also an intellectual dialogue, right? About what that means and how that, uh, what, what, what these theories mean to him. But I'm thinking about what you're saying about the Judaism and, and, and the going back to his, um, Jewish, um, Jewishness. Uh, I mean, it's, if you think about it, the same cycle that I was describing before, uh, played out in Lou's relationship with Judaism as well. Because Lou was raised in a religious Jewish household, and being a Jewish was a very, very big part of his identity. Uh, while his family was religious, as Lou grew up and tried to separate from his mother, interestingly, he pushed himself to become more and more and more religious, more religious than his parents. And then, right, you would think that he would do the opposite, but no, he actually became more religious. He after he he also um, moved to Jerusalem at some point. At some point, when he was uh, nineteen, he was always joking that he was there. I was born when he was nineteen, 
And so that was the time when he went to Jerusalem. He, uh, you know, the, his timing wasn't great. He couldn't find me yet. And also um, he went to Jerusalem and I was in Tel Aviv. So his, the location was also not exactly right. But that was his joke that he was there to look for me because it was just the year was born he was there and um so he became more and more orthodox and he, when he went to jerusalem he went to study in a yeshiva in jerusalem his mother i would say of course followed him and turned more and more religious herself <laughs> yeah. until right because she she followed him because she admired him right which i think can also as you know, we know as psychologists can also be a burden at, until at some point lou decided to rebel against religion and she became more religious and he became secular so see so that was his relationship was Judaism, in my mind is related to his relationship uh, with his parents especially with his mother and he he also he often often mentioned that his psychoanalytic journey was very similar if you think about it, if you think about his relationship with freud because as a student he entered a freudian analysis and he looked for more and at the most freudian supervisors and tried to be even more orthodox than they were but then he reached a point where he rebelled against classical theory and he joined his friend uh, uh, stephen mitchell and in pushing against psychoanalytic orthodoxy, I would say. And so I think that, that you could see that his relationship with his religion, and I have to say that at the end of his life, uh, in the last few years, uh, probably uh, uh, not only, of course, after he got sick, uh, but also I believe that it was related to the fact that his mother died, and, and his mother died, mm, I would say, around... Uh, 10 years before he died. And uh, after her death, uh, he became uh, more uh, religious and also more Freudian, I have to say. He went back to connected with um, his Judaism and also uh, opened a few new reading groups on Freud and uh, Mm -hmm, studying the Torah. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Yeah. You know what I'm struck by right now, Galit, as we're talking too, is um, as we're talking about his personal life, it's like, well, was there a father? <laughs> it's so interesting, right? And so I'm think wondering. about the primal scene and about all of his writing. There is a, let me see which chapter that is, um, the internalized primal scene. And he talks about the Oedipal, really, really, really a, a topic that Lou was an expert in intellectually that he would say that it was about the triangle of um, uh, his father mother and him i think his father was less dominant than his mother and he would describe his father as a little bit more masochistic as a little bit more um uh, less less uh, dominant than his mother Mm. now were you ever able to meet um his parents and no, but I went with him to visit his gra- their grave um, a few times, and uh, I said my slip was his grave because actually he's buried next to them, and so he had uh, he's buried exactly where he wanted to next to his uh, parents. And uh, when we started uh, being together about uh, a little bit more than ten years ago, um, we one of the first things Lou did is take me to visit uh, his parents' grave. I wonder if Stephen Mitchell became, because he, he loved Stephen Mitchell, right? And was very influenced in his um, 
rebellion against Freud, I guess. And and if Stephen was a um, transitional object or something for him into mutuality, I don't know. I'm just playing here with ideas. Um, uh, you know, I don't know if a lot of people know that. Uh, first of all, Lou was very close to Steve. Yeah. And uh, Steve died on Lou's birthday. Oh, that's right. December 21st, 2000. Oh, my. Uh, uh, and that was a very, very traumatic and painful thing. Obviously, his death was painful. But uh, the story about that day that Lou told me many times is that um, Steve wrote Can Love Last? And he asked Lou uh, to give him feedback. He sent him the manuscript and said, like, read it and write, you know, he, he meant he wanted to edit it and get uh, Lou's uh, feedback on it. And Lou took a day off on his birthday, December 21st. And, you know, anyone who, who knew Lou knew that for him, a day off, meaning he's going to read. That's, that's his birthday gift to himself. And so he called Steve in the morning and he said to him, listen, I'm taking a day off and I'm going to get back to you at the end of the day with uh, reading uh, your, um, your book. And uh, a few hours later, Steve died. That's terribly sad. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would say he picked up a lot of the mantle of, of relational psychoanalysis um, post-Steven's death as well. Um, and I think also now losing Lou early, uh, it, there's a sadness to that for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There is a... You know, it's it does feel like the relational movement, if we can even call it a movement anymore, um, lost a lot of a lot of leaders in the you know, and in the last few years also. I mean, with Neurodev, uh, with uh, Philip Philip Bromberg, and mm -hmm. you, of course, and yeah. a lot of loss. And and Jeremy Safran, which was a close friend of Lou. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of loss. Yeah, I'm curious um, if you could tell us how Lou has informed your own thinking, uh, both as a theoretician and a clinician. Um, so that's that's part A of my question. Part B is, and what do you think you taught Lou? <laughs> <laughs> that's a very sweet question, mm. uh, which I think is related to the fact that Lou always learned from everyone, right? Yeah. And uh, that was his thing. Um, listen, Lou was my partner and he was my best friend and I shared with him everything I thought and my clinical work and, of course, everything I wrote he read, uh, which, uh, which I miss very much. And, and I think one quality he had was um, to make people feel good about what they have to say. And I, I think anyone who worked with Lou would say that. Uh, he he never said like, "Oh, you need to do this, you need to do that, or you need to edit it." And he his his input was very tender and gentle. And usually, he like a good analyst would listen to you and try to really help you develop your own ideas. And you know, he he I the main thing he gave me really is confidence in what I was doing, which was huge, right? I mean, what else do we need? If we're just saying, like, you know what I say uh, is, is uh, 
is something that maybe has uh, some value or that uh, that I could be I could have be brave enough to publish and um, and of course it's very strange for me to write a new book without him reading everything um again Lou was not someone who would give you advice he would encourage you to do exactly what he thought you know how to do and that is the feedback that I get from any anyone who had worked with him and I think that's why people really uh, felt that he was and, and he was very generous to people in what he gave them you know it was um, it was incredible to his encouragement to just yeah do it to mm. just go for it right the yeah. Nike commercial just do it yeah, yeah <laughs> I love it do yeah. it you know uh, you know, I love that line that you said, uh, he, he gave you confidence and that it does go along with that line. Just do it. And um, yeah, you're great. You're like, I love it. You know, he would be so enthusiastic about things, which any, I mean, anyone needs that, right? It's like yeah. that moment where you write something, especially the beginning of your career and and you have somebody like Lou who reads it and says like, wow, this is incredible. I love it. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, that's a lot. It is. It's a lot. You know, yeah. I'm also thinking that 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 must have had an influence on practice as well uh, about mm-hmm. uh, psychoanalysis. We can be so careful and so obscure. Mm-hmm. And there's something about his work that I feel and see that mm-hmm. is get involved, <laughs> co-create, mm-hmm. get into it, just yeah. do it. Don't be afraid. You know, that's what he would say. Don't be afraid. Listen, Lou is a very, very brave guy. You know, he had done a lot of controversial things and he was not afraid. He wasn't afraid of anyone. And I think and that was what was part of what was so heartbreaking about the end of his life, because this man was a very, very brave man. And he was brave until the end. But he, he, you know, that was a real struggle with uh, his health and with death that, that uh, you know, brought him to very complicated places emotionally um, because, because he was used to being a man who is really not afraid. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, uh, did he die afraid or was he, how would you say? I don't know that he died afraid. He he was always brave until the last minute. But I think at the end, he really asked himself, as I as I believe all of us will, <laughs> when we know we're about to die, was he, you know, what does it mean? And we had a lot of conversations about death and about God, right? And was he good? And did he... Was he good to other people? And what was, uh, and, and yeah, the, the last week of his life, I organized for him a Jewish prayer for his soul. Uh, I invited a few colleagues who are, um, uh, you know, connected to uh, Jewish religion. And we were sitting around his bed and praying for him. And that was a very special moment mm. for all of us. Yeah, I would think. Bless you all on that, for sure. I want to ask you a couple of other questions about you and your future and that sort of thing. But I I would like to just uh, mention a couple things for our readers about this book. Um, And there's two things that that I think highlight him. And one on the chapter with, with you, I'm born again. 
Um, Lou, again, you get the complexity of his mind and his practice because often there can be a misunderstanding of relational theory to be sort of a theory based only on the here and now and two people just jabbering about the relationship. But in this chapter, you discover the depth of relational thinking in theory and in practice because Lou takes us down this path of in utero development, primal fantasies, early object relations, unconscious fantasies, emergent properties repetition compulsion it's like oh my goodness this is so rich right <laughs> i know you know i think that, that for the people who will be you know who read this book what you will be surprised to learn which i think that's what you're saying and tell me if i'm right is that lou was had incredible knowledge I don't think that, I mean, when I'm saying surprise, it's not surprising. Everybody knew that that Blue had incredible knowledge. That was not a secret. But we think about him as a relationalist, right? As somebody who uh, wrote about, he, the most famous things he wrote about, mutuality and about self-disclosure, about the analyst subjectivity, right? All of those um, uh, back then, very revolutionary uh, relational ideas. But when you read the book, and I think that was part of um, what we were trying to do, is go back um, to the 80s. The, um, I think the first chapter I have here is from is really the, the, the chapters on dreams from uh, 1989. And you would see that a lot of it is is classical theory. It's exactly what you're saying, right? Uh, we're talking about um, Piaget. You have we have a, a, about a primal scene, about um, uh, not only the analyst subjectivity, which of course is in, in included, but uh, the, and the relational matrix. But a lot of themes about fantasy, unconscious fantasy, right? All of those things that seem. Um, you know, that you wouldn't think that Lou, that was his, uh, you know, that was his theory, but he actually, he knew everything about everything. And he was, in his mind, he was, you know, in his core, he was a, a classical theorist. First of all, before, and I think that's what I admired about him, that he's, um, his development of relational psychoanalysis was based on knowing so much right yeah and and that's why i i when i was reading that ago it's so easy to be sloppy uh in our work and in our theories and i think when we don't keep grounding our why i have such admiration for him he keeps grounding himself and his writings in what is at the bottom of all of this and how do i build upon it how am i playing with it and creating it and it, it's a real lesson to all of us as um, practitioners and theorists and writers and what have you to to be really disciplined and and because it it creates such such depth. Yeah, it's really thing, true, you know, I just want to add to it because I like when you use the word discipline because I do think that relational psychoanalysis is, is often blamed of not being disciplined enough. Right, and analysts are blamed to like you know we like to interact, but I think that is actually not true, and, and definitely uh, you used the word discipline. I think that Lou was one of the people that had the most discipline I've ever known, and what he wrote was really really uh, is based on a lot a lot of knowledge, and uh, so that is um, a really important thing to add about about really 
the discipline in right in creating new ideas based on uh, a body of knowledge. Yeah, you know the other thing I I want to um, just mention and is that Lewis also like when I think back twenty six years ago, he was a prophet in many ways. In his uh, uh, on the chapter on internalized primal scene, published in nineteen ninety five. He either he was either a prophet or just was so ahead of his time because in that chapter he repurposes heteronormative theories that opened up not only a greater understanding of the complexity of sexual identity, but paved the way for this whole complex understanding of the self as a web of multiplicity. That was huge. That was twenty six years ago, and you know today we're all talking about it. But that wouldn't have been normal. It wouldn't be the case. Uh, That's incredible, right? It is really incredible. Yeah. incredible. And I think in the introduction of Steve Hartman to that chapter, you could see, and he, he, he actually follows it and talks about exactly that. I actually love the introductions to the, you know, to the chapters. I would like, if you don't mind, to just mention the people who wrote introductions. Um, except the first ch- chapter was a loose introduction, but then... We have. I, I really chose people who worked very closely with him. Not just uh, you know he he knew so many people and he had a lot of friends and you can imagine it was really hard to choose who who would write. So I uh, who would write and who would write what. I really tried to choose people who um to, who really had a relationship with him, a professional relationship with him, not a, not a personal relationship with him, and worked with him on, on projects. So uh, I have Adrian Harris there and Steve Hartman, who wrote about the primal scene and uh, the chapter on God influence on uh, on my psychoanalytic vision and values is uh, the introduction is by uh, Mike Eigen. Uh, there is the chapter, uh, Tom Ogden, who uh, Lou really appreciated and worked with um, many years ago, uh, wrote a chapter, and Steve Kuchak, uh, of course, who was very close to Lou and worked with him, edited with him the um, this the psychoanalytic um, um, the, the the book series, the psychoanalytic book series, um, and we have uh, Hannah Ullman and Don Stern and Mirav Roth. Of course, Jessica Benjamin and Joyce Slackauer and Jay Greenberg, which Lou highly, highly appreciated and worked with and uh, uh, always talked about. And so uh, this introduction will give exactly that perspective that you're talking about of really reading these articles years later. And and what my, my request, I would say, was is read this chapter and give us the reader's something about the value of those articles in retrospect. And yeah. I think people did a really wonderful job. They did. I'm not sure you mentioned Adrian Harris on uh, operational thought, but yes, uh, yeah. I, uh, she's the second chapter. Adrian yeah. Harris. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And to listeners, um, his good friend, Stephen uh, Kuchuk, I will be interviewing him in June. Of his, of, mm-hmm. of his new book, so yeah. that's, that's wonderful, great. wonderful new book. Yes, uh, it is. Dedicated yeah. to Lou, and uh, I really highly recommend Steve Kuchik's book. So, Galit, tell us what you're up to today, and I know you have a new book coming out. And when will it be on the shelves? And what is the book about? 
Hey, so I do have a new book that I finished writing and just finished editing and actually just chose the cover. <laughs> and this is my first book that is not going to be published by the Rutledge, but going to be published uh, by a trade publisher. And it's a book for the public that tries to introduce psychoanalytic ideas uh, to a general audience. Uh, the book is called Emotional Inheritance. And it introduces, um, the, I would say, the many faces of inherited trauma, what we call intergenerational transmission of trauma. Uh, but not only trauma, every inherited, emotional inheritance, uh, and the ways we carry our parents and grandparents, and I talk there, I have a whole section on grandparents and a section on parents, uh, unprocessed experiences, especially trauma, but not only trauma. Uh, it's not only for clinicians, and it tells uh, my own stories as well as my patients, and it definitely introduces to the public psychoanalytic thinking on, um, you know, on, on the unconscious, on a, a lot, some theory, and on our emotional inheritance. Hmm. Lovely. And when do you th when do you think it'll be out? Did you say? So the book will be published by Little Brown, and it will be out, at, at, I think it's January 25th. Okay, good. So we still have uh, a little pregnancy to go, probably uh, seven months, I think, from now. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to, to reading it, for sure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And the book is dedicated to the memory of, of Lou. Yeah. And uh, some, of the, some of the chapters he had uh, read... Uh, when I, st I started writing it about uh, maybe two and a half years ago when he was really sick and uh, he read some of it. But um, some of the chapters are, he's mentioned in them when there is one chapter on loss and uh, working with a patient who loses um, a very dear person while I'm going through that. And I introduce those thoughts of how do we hold and contain another person's loss when we struggle with our own. Yeah. Well, uh, Galit, this has been wonderful for me. I'm wondering uh, to be with you this afternoon and, and talk about this book and to sort of have this almost somewhat intimate conversation about a man we both mm -hmm. highly admire and with whom you loved and had a life partnership with. It's been very wonderful for me. And so I'm just wondering if there's any Anything else you want to add before we call it a day? Or mm -hmm. I just want to add a thank you to you. Uh, mm -hmm. This was very special. And this is, a, again, a, spe a very special uh, project for me. So I am very happy to be here today and talk to you about it. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Ron. Yeah, thank you so much. Mm -hmm.